Here we read, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be joined, justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Let's pray. Again, our Father, we pray that you would not only just open our minds to your truth, but Lord, we want more than that, and we need more than that. We don't want to just know facts, but Lord, we want to have faith, and we want to know the true and living God, and what it means to walk by faith, and to truly love you and love those that you've placed in our lives. And so, Father, we pray for transformation of hearts. And we pray that you would take your word and like seeds as it is sown, Lord, we pray that you would bring forth fruit that would remain. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm just curious, what value do you place on freedom? Freedom. The founders of our nation risked their livelihoods, they risked their lives to secure political and religious freedom. But I would suggest that for many people today, the freedom that they secured as our founders of our nation is different than the freedom that many people are pursuing today. The modern form of freedom cherishes liberty to do as I please. Whenever, wherever, however, and with whomever I please. Many people today yearn for freedom from other people's opinions, from their values, from their ideas being forced upon them. And they love to believe as they please and they enjoy whatever they want and leave them alone, give me freedom, give me freedom. I find it interesting that Jesus spoke of freedom and it's dangerous for some of us who come and read his statements to somehow place onto those words about freedom what many people today desire in freedom. I want to do whatever I want to do and leave me alone to do it and listen to what Jesus said. Clearly, he's talking about something different than that. Jesus insisted in John chapter 8 that his hearers would know the truth and the truth would make them free. We have to ask ourselves, what freedom is he talking about? He also went on to declare that if the Son of God makes you free, you will be free indeed. In what sense would they be truly free? Because the people that heard those words immediately concluded he must be talking about the Romans. He's talking about political lack of freedom. And Jesus clearly was not talking about that. And in our text this morning, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul is making a statement. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
Again, it begs the question, why is Paul making such a big deal about freedom? What is this freedom to which he's referring? I would call it gospel freedom. What, what is gospel freedom? Why does the gospel freedom that he speaks about here need to be guarded so carefully? And what are some practical implications of gospel freedom? We're beginning now a new section of the book of Galatians. It is the section that talks about the implications of the gospel of grace. This is a book that has first spent the first two chapters talking about Paul's biography of what he's about and who he is as an individual, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he got into theological issues about looking into understanding how does one understand the gospel of grace as compared to the teachings of the law and different things like that. And now he's now looking into the implications. If we understand the gospel of grace, what difference does it make? What does it look like in terms of how we live? And so I'd like to answer some of these questions in terms of what it is by following three points in your outline this morning. Number one, I want to ask ourselves, what is gospel freedom? We need to understand, understanding gospel freedom. Verse 1a, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Maybe you've run into some critics of the Christian faith, and they have come to you and they've pointed out to you that one of their big beefs about Christianity is that it contains a long list of restrictions, a long list of prohibitions. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, thou shalt not do this, don't, thou shalt not do that. And these critics of Christianity claim that living, sort of following Jesus, is like living in a straitjacket. There is no freedom. And yet in this context, notice that Paul is celebrating and talking about the incredible value and, and, and uh, worth that this Christian freedom is. He's celebrating it. And how would we answer, how would Paul answer critics who characterize following Jesus as a loss of freedom? Clearly, that's not what Paul's associating with the Christian faith. He says it's freedom that Christ has set us free. In what sense, then, has Christ set his people free? That's a very important question we need to answer. In order to understand what Paul meant by that freedom, we have to understand and have a clear perception about the condition that all of us have apart from Christ, left to ourselves in our unregenerate condition. Mankind, apart from the gospel, is fallen and enslaved. Jesus said in that same chapter of John 8 earlier, as I quoted some of his statements regarding freedom, clarified what he was talking about, and he said, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Everyone has inherited a disposition to sin. I spent our Sunday school class today laying that out, the biblical understanding that says that we are all born with a heart bent in the direction toward evil. And everyone then who breaks the laws of the creator of the universe is shackled to something he carries around with them all the time. Guilt. Moral guilt before a holy and righteous God. And according to Romans chapter 2, apart from Christ, all of us are storing up wrath for ourselves in the day of wrath when the righteous judgment of God will be revealed. Romans 2, verse 5. And so Jesus, 
when he appears on the scene, assume the role of a liberator. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus quoted these words as he read from the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61. And after reading these words, he then sat down and said, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. Listen to what he said. Reading from Isaiah 61, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release for the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Favorable year of the Lord? So what is he referring? The favorable year of the Lord was the year of Jubilee, which, according to the Israelite calendar, that after seven years of sevens, that is, if you have, sorry, after seven periods of seven years, that's a better way to say it, on the 50th year that the Israelites were to observe a year of Jubilee in which if you, during that period of time, had incurred debts because you were so impoverished, you had to sell yourself into some sort of uh, indentured servitude, and you owed money you couldn't pay, in that 50th year, then all your debts and all your obligations would be wiped clean. Everyone starts over. So your debts are removed. And Jesus came providing a full and satisfactory payment for every sinner who repents and believes in him. That's why the book starts off, Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, Jesus gave himself for our sins. In Christ, sinners find full freedom from the penalty of our sin. And gospel freedom, then, removes the barriers that stand between us and God. This means that every true believer is free to know, who is free to delight in God now. Because gospel freedom means that sinners like you and me, now that our guilt and now that our penalty of sin has been dealt with, we are now free to enjoy God, to enjoy a relationship with the God who made us. And now to enjoy the fullness of his love, the fullness of his forgiveness. And that that fullness does not depend upon our obedience. It does not depend upon our consistent record of godly living. After the period of time of all of our incurring that debt, it's now wiped clean because Christ paid it for us. Jesus kept the demands of the law. And everyone who believes and fully relies upon Christ and his obedience and his payment for their sin is free from the curse of the law. And because of Christ, we are free to become all that God wants us to become. That's true freedom. Over the years, people have tried a number of attempts to invent various flying machines. Have you seen those old movies, black and white? of these crazy convoluted machines, uh, different ones that bounce up and down with like an umbrella kind of thing and it eventually falls apart and, and uh, other th forms of just weird little attempts to try to fly the thing. It's got three or four levels of, of uh, some sort of wings that all collapse upon itself. And, 
Imagine if you were to stand there and you say, well, my goal in life is to become free of having to be living enslaved to this earth. I want to fly. I want to join the birds and be able to, to, to enjoy the, the, the freedom of flight. And so if you were to stand on the edge of a very high cliff and you were to attach to your arms some sort of wooden wings that you had crafted, it took you a long time, you worked at it quite diligently, and you put those wings on and you're flapping as hard as you know how to flap and you've got some sort of gizmo on your back here to act as some sort of tail, giving some sort of direction, supposedly, if you ever become uh, uh, airborne, and you were to flap as hard as you wanted, would you ever be liberated from the consequences of the laws of gravity? I think not. If we, no matter how hard you're flapping, uh, I wouldn't suggest you do this, by the way, because it's, the reality is, even though we have our most valiant efforts to somehow get ourselves to be in flight and escape the laws of gravity, most assuredly, you're going to aim toward disaster. And what happens, though, if we as people who long for that kind of freedom from gravity and the curse that we feel in having to be on this ground all the time, as it were, what happens if we admit that we are incapable of overcoming that and we submit in a sense of repentance and say, I'm going to put a harness upon me and that harness is going to be attached and anchored to the harness of a pilot, a guide, as it were, who is also harnessed to one of these hang gliders. And as we reach the edge of that cliff, we go forward off the cliff, and here comes the breeze. And here comes the, the warm thermal winds. They're going to lift you up and guide you out over, soaring over the fields below. You're attached to something that is not natural to you, something that you don't... You, know, you didn't accomplish, you didn't somehow create, it is that someone is enabling you to overcome that. You see, being harnessed to Christ by grace and enjoying all the benefits of what Christ can bring to us and liberating us from our guilt and shame results in tremendous freedom. Freedom from the curse of the law that would essentially bring about the result of certain spiritual death. Apart from Christ, we're faced spiritual death. So that's the, that's the thought that Paul has in mind here, understanding gospel freedom. But then he goes on in the text to say this, beginning in verse 2. Well, actually, it's the last part of verse 1. He says, Keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that if he is under obligation to keep the whole law and you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Paul says it's not enough just to understand gospel freedom. We need to guard it. Guarding gospel freedom. And resist the gospel of works righteousness. Even believers... He's writing to believers need to resist this gospel of works righteousness. 
You see, Paul's heart is so pained at the thought that these believers to whom he had given the gospel of grace, that they've now relinquishing that freedom and they're returning now into bondage. And they were being seduced into embracing the false gospel that says that we must do something to earn God's full forgiveness. And rather than sitting back and watching these dearly loved spiritual children of his abandon the gospel of freedom, he emphatically says, did you notice that in verse 2? I, Paul, it's almost as if he's underlining that, stating it with a very strong, emphatic sense. I, Paul, am speaking to you here. He's saying, I'm going to give you three reasons why you need to stand firm and not go back into this gospel of good works. First reason. Well, these false teachers were insisting that this freedom from guilt can only be enjoyed by those who gain merit through their own participation. Maybe a ceremonies or rituals or pious deeds. For them, it was circumcision. But it could mean anything. You could add anything to there. Moralism. Become a better person. But Paul's reminding them that such teaching is erroneous. Look at this, letter A. Trying to earn our, our standing before God only leads to enslavement. Trying to earn our standing before God leads you right back into enslavement. He proves his point easily because he says the Gentiles, the non-Jews among them, were being told, listen, in order to become a true Christian, you have to do this. You have to be circumcised in order to secure the full approval of God. And so he's saying, if you add one rule to observe in order to gain God's full acceptance, he says, you're under obligation not to this, that one rule. You're under obligation now to keep all the requirements of the law. Every single one of them, you've got to keep them. If you're going to add a requirement, then you're going to have all the requirements of the law must be met by you. That's what he says in verse 3. And in the quote I offered in the notes there, notice what Philip Ryken says. If we try to be justified before God by anything we do, no matter how small it is, you're not free. You're still living under the curse of the sin that you're not going to perform. You're not going to meet up. You're not going to fulfill every single requirement you're supposed to meet. Why are you going to go back to that, he says. It makes no sense. Second reason he gives that we need to insist on not adding to the gospel of grace our efforts to achieve merit, he says, is Christ, if we do that, if we insist on adding to the gospel of grace our efforts to achieve merit, Christ is made useless. Useless. Jesus came to fulfill the law, which none of us is able to do, and his work is of no profit to those who are trusting in their own merit, in their own goodness, in their own ability to perform righteous deeds before God. And if we could keep the law, Jesus would be unnecessary. I think I may have used this before. I'm going to use it again because I just think this illustrates it so clearly. I brought with me again part of my collection of autographed memorabilia when I was like in the sixth grade. I wrote away to various people for their autographs. Didn't cost any money back then. You just wrote them a letter, said, would you send me an autographed picture or something? And so I have here one of my uh, signed, um, it's a postcard that came in an envelope from Joe DiMaggio. 
And so he has, a, it's a picture of his uh, plaque at the National Baseball Hall of Fame, describes various things he accomplished there. And so it's a shiny, glossy uh, postcard, and he's written at the top his autograph, Joe DiMaggio. If you look at it real carefully, though, it's smudged because he wrote it in ballpoint pen. And so I thought to myself, now, would it add value to this particular uh, piece of memorabilia if I were to take a felt-tipped marker and very carefully just go over the same way he formed those letters and make it so it wasn't smudgy, so that the pen would sort of el eliminate all the little smudginess there? Now, do you think that would increase the value or destroy the value? Destroy the value, absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, the envelope that I still have kept that accompanied the card has the same way he makes the letters. To, I think he addressed the envelope as well. Anyway, okay, a little, little tidbit there. Okay, the point is this. If we add something to what Christ has done, we make what Christ has done worthless, of no value. If you're relying on yourself and not on Christ, then we've lost sight of our desperate need for all that Christ does for us that we cannot do. And here's the point that Paul's trying to say. Adding our own efforts to Christ's work denigrates Christ's work. You, you believe in one, you believe in Christ, then you need to what? Not assume that you can do things to make you right with God. You're only relying on what Christ can do for you. There's a third reason that Paul says we need to be careful that we're not adding our efforts to the gospel of grace is that it destroys the whole concept of grace. It destroys grace. And that's what I think he means there in verse 4, to fall from grace. He's not saying that a person loses his or her salvation because we know in Scripture and other places that cannot happen. Paul's point is that we cannot rely on the grace of God while at the same time seeking to be justified by our works. You can't do that. That's, those are contradictory. You cannot rely on Christ alone, at the same time rely on your own good works to gain acceptance before God. Since grace is by definition unmerited favor, it cannot be combined with work salvation, which depends on gaining merited favor. You ever try to combine oil and water, right? Put the water in a container and you add the oil, you shake it up, you let it stop, and what does it do? Immediately it separates, right? The two are not compatible. They do not join together as they are. They repel each other. And there's a huge difference between relating to God on the basis of grace and relating to God on the basis of our performance. A relationship with God built on law-keeping is the opposite of what Paul has already described about what we receive by the gospel of grace, and that is a familial relationship with God, who is our Father, who adopts us as his sons or daughters, and therefore it is rooted in grace. The law is unforgiving. The law is relentless. But the gospel of grace continually provides assurance that we are loved, and that we are secure because of Jesus. Hold your finger there and look at Romans 8 just for a second. Romans chapter 8, page 1346. 
1346. I find it interesting that Paul talks here about freedom in the context of what the gospel of grace does. He just uses different words here in Romans 8. Verse 1, page 1346. There is therefore now, notice what he says, now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He does not say there is no, therefore no condemnation for those who are working hard to gain Christ's favor. He doesn't say that. He's saying for those who are in Christ. That means that they find themselves so identified with Christ that they are indeed have joined to him by faith. He goes on to say, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of, sorry, set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did it. Sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What's he saying there? He's saying that Christ fulfilled the law, and if you're in Christ, then you have the benefit of what Christ done for you, and therefore you're free from that condemnation. The guilt is gone. Therefore you relate to God, enjoying and relishing and being amazed by grace. Not your performance, but grace. And Christ, what he's done for you. Let me just say something, one more important point here I want to make. If we truly understand the gospel of grace, and we understand all the things that are going to happen if we somehow get away from that gospel of grace and fall back into relating to God on the basis of our performance, if you don't celebrate the gospel of grace, guess what? it's very likely you're going to start pretending that you're better than you are. Because if you're saying to yourself, I've got to be better in order to be accepted by God, then you're going to strive hard to put on an image in your front in which you say, I'm trying hard to be a good and better person. I'm not going to talk about my faults and my weaknesses. Derek Thomas says this, God knows that we are sinners. He accepts us in Christ regardless if we're in Christ. And those who seek justification by obedience find themselves overestimating their obedience or underestimating their disobedience. There is always a basic dishonesty about the relationship we have with God if you are relating to God on the basis of your performance. Relating to God on the basis of how well you keep the law breeds dishonesty. It breeds cynicism. It also breeds a sense of, ugh, I just can't keep up. I can't do it. And weariness of soul. Only a relationship that is based on grace can ever truly lead to true freedom. My friends, if you truly have trusted in Christ, you repent of your sins, Enjoy the freedom you have in Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has made you free. Throw off the shackles of guilt. Throw off the shackles of shame. And enjoy God. Enjoy Him. Not try to work hard so you can become accepted. 
accept the fact or trust the fact that Christ has done it all and now enjoy God. Know that he enjoys you. His love for you is strong. His grace is deep and wide. Well, that leads me to a third point here. And this is found in verses 5 and 6. Very interesting how Paul is now moving in this direction of the what if. I mean, the so, so that, so what. Verse 5, he says, for we through this, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 5 of Galatians. Verse 5, we have through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. And I would just call this, if we understand the gospel of grace, there's a call then to demonstrate that gospel freedom. Demonstrating gospel freedom with faith, hope, and love. Rather than working for righteousness, the true children of God are what? We're waiting. Waiting for righteousness that will be revealed on that final day. Through the gospel of grace, we can now enjoy the blessings of having the Spirit of God, and He gives to us constant assurances. What is He whispering into our ear? What is the Spirit of God assuring us as He points us to Christ? The Spirit of God, the Spirit of of adoption, He says in Romans 8, He is assuring us that we are loved. He is assuring us that we are accepted by God. He is assuring us that we are declared right with God, that we're fully adopted and we belong to Him on the basis of grace. And therefore, because of the ministry of the Spirit, we can therefore be filled with hope. Hope that one day, not only are we free from our guilt regarding our sin and the penalty of sin, but we're looking forward to that day when we're free from the indwelling sin that we struggle with every day. Because of the gospel of grace, we are confident and we are totally assured that one day, oh, one day, we will be fully transformed and made like Christ. The one who has adopted me, I will finally be more like him and completely like him as much as I can as a human being who's been fully redeemed. Not because I performed well, not because I made all the right choices, but because the work that he begun in me, he will bring to completion. 1 John chapter 3, we read earlier. I want to read again these two, these two verses, verse 2 and 3. John says it this way. Beloved, now we are children of God. Do you believe that? Now we are children of God. If you're in Christ, that's true. It has not appeared as yet what we shall be. Thank God. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Christ does what? Purifies himself just as he is pure. See, the gospel of grace points us to the future hope that we have of being fully sanctified and declared in a a state of glorification, and we will someday, our true identity is going to be fully manifested. It's going to be so obvious to see. It's not so obvious to see right now in me. I still become impatient. I still carry along a lot of evil thoughts about other people. I still struggle with what I say and what I should have said I didn't say. My fear of people. 
always trying to feel like I come across looking like I have my act together when I don't. But the gospel of grace is saying what? I've been given a full adoption by God and I am free from the condemnation of my failings and my sin because of Christ. And that freedom from damnation is now going to be combined someday with the freedom from the corruption of all creation that I share in every day. Because I still make stupid choices, I still sin, and I'm still a broken person who's longing to someday be more like Jesus, completely and fully. So Romans 8.20 says this, page 1346, Romans 8.20. Creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be, what, set free. Creation itself is going to be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Oh, I love that. He goes on to say, We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. What's he saying? We're waiting in hope to see the presence of sin be removed. Right now we're seeing gradual improvements in the power of sin that holds us under its sway. I don't have to sin like I used to. I now, because of Christ, I can make different choices and praise God, occasionally do. But someday the presence of sin will be fully eradicated. Praise God. When I think of a woman who feels the pangs of labor and the intensification of that pain as she's being wheeled into or has she set up shop in the labor and delivery room on the, on the floor there at Stony Brook Hospital or wherever it is, And she's waiting to hear what? Ten centimeters? It's time to push. Right? That's what they're always waiting on. Give me those magic words. Get me out of this misery. Nobody goes into the labor and delivery room feeling those kind of contractions is anticipating living life with continual labor pains for the rest of their days. What you're dealing with in your struggle with sin, if you're truly a child of God, you struggle with sin. And that's a part of you that says, oh, I wish I wasn't like that. I don't want to be that way. My friend, let me tell you something. Those labor pains are telling you what? There's going to come a day when it's going to be over with. And we're groaning. and We're in a difficult time now where we have a struggle going on inside of us. But it doesn't mean we go back and try to be a better person and relate to God by trying to always do the right thing. It means that we want to see Christ take the gospel of grace that motivates to say, God is going to do a work in me. He's not going to be finished with me until he finally makes me like Christ. We who enjoy full acceptance because of Christ's complete obedience, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, We have already been freed from the penalty of sin. Praise God. We are in the process now of being freed from the power of sin, to always yield to sin, to always get stuck in the same pattern again and again and again. 
we're seeing the Lord by His grace help us through His grace to, to see victory over time in that area. And then someday, as God gives us new motives, as He gives us the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in this life, there's going to come a day, though, when we finally be freed again, as I said, from the presence of sin. Here's my final thought. Tim Keller talks about the fact that we, oftentimes, it helps to see the, the practical demonstration of the gospel of grace in our lives. And he says it like this. He says, suppose you're a young woman and you're asked by a gentleman that you've known for a period of time. You're asked by this guy. He actually gets down on his knee. He asks you to marry him. You're blown away. You're thrilled, whatever. And so uh, you agree to do so. But in the midst of that engagement period of time, it becomes clear to you that one of the things about this gentleman is that he has made it clear he would not have proposed to you if you did not come into this marriage with a huge, uh, some sort of inheritance that you have coming to you, meaning that you are loaded financially. And once you learn that this gentleman has such an interest in that, it's very clear that money is what drives him. How do you think that woman's feeling? Thinking that if I don't have that inheritance, that money somehow dries up, this man would not be there for me at all. He would probably leave me in a heartbeat. Probably she feels used. There's no love in that. And when we think that our works somehow save us, and that we served God at that point for what we could get from Him, because what we're looking for is full acceptance, full significance and meaning. We're using God. But after the hope of the gospel settles in and we see the grace and we see the beauty of God in the gospel, we love Him for who He is. We appreciate Him for who He is in a profound way. And we serve God not for what God brings us, but for who He is and what He's already showered upon us in the gospel of grace. So we hope. We're full of hope. And we demonstrate that hopefulness in a new sense of understanding our new identity, appreciating grace all the more, and having a new motive to live for Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we find it, uh, again, quite significant that there's an entire book of the Bible devoted to this danger about falling into the gospel of works. And Lord, we know it's written to people who do not understand grace, that they might, for the first time, come to understand, appreciate, and respond to the grace of God in the gospel by repenting of all attempts to try to earn their merit before you and trusting Christ completely and alone for their salvation. But Lord, we know that the, the book of the Bible in Galatians is also written to Christians because we know we all subtly fall back into the tendency to relate to you on the basis of how well we're performing or not performing. And so, Father, I pray that you would, again, open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to appreciate all the glories of Christ and his work of grace. Help us to see, Lord, that we would treat Christ as useless if we start thinking that we have to do better in order to find acceptance by you. 
Help us, Father, to have hearts that are motivated out of a sense of incredible gratitude and appreciation and love for Christ. It fills us with hope and leads us down a new path, Lord, as the Spirit of God points us to Christ and helps us see we are created in Christ Jesus to be set free, not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin right now in our lives, and someday from the the presence of sin. Lord, to every heart that is weighed down and discouraged, because they are so focused on themselves, I pray that you would help them to see Christ today as one who is full of grace and mercy, who is ready to rescue and save all those who come to him and cry out in simple faith and trust in him. We pray in his name. Amen.